This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The Air Force celebrated its 75th anniversary on Sunday. General Charles Q. Brown, Chief of Staff, says this could be the most important moment in their history. When you think about the the geostrategic environment, we're probably in a very uh, challenging time compared to where we've been over the course of the past number of decades. Aggressive countries like Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and instances around the world where democracy is ignored. As you watch the threats evolve and the challenges evolve, we cannot rest on our laurels of the past 75 years. And General Brown says not resting means not just going through the motion. We've got to be better than we are today, um, and that's what I'm focused on as the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On the 17th of September, the day before the Air Force's 75th anniversary, General Charles Q. Brown, Jr., the 22nd Chief of Staff, sat down with me, and I was privileged to have that opportunity at Joint Base Andrews during the air show and expo, and we talked about where the Air Force has come from, where it is, and where it's going. And he said he's focused on moving it forward. These are troubling times we live in, and he indicated the U.S. Air Force, which is the best in the world, needs to remain at the top of its game. General Brown, would you talk to us a little bit about the significance of the 75th anniversary? Well, this weekend has been a, a something we've been working on really over the course of the past year um, to get ready for and celebrate uh, our 75th anniversary as Department of the Air Force and and the Air Force. So we've had a series of events, and this is one of the culminating events uh, as uh, September 18th tomorrow is the actual birthday of the United States Air Force. And so um, this air show is an opportunity to uh, show to the public um, what our Air Force uh, does and, and really also display our airmen. Uh, the other thing I'll also highlight is that I'm also hosting the International Air Chief Conference. And so we have great relationships. I have great personal relationships with many of the Air Chiefs here, are here. And we have 49 different countries that are represented and have been here for the past couple of days. We had some really good engagements yesterday, and they're out here for the Air Show today as well. So I saw um, the Air Chiefs uh, piece, and I want to get to that in a second, but I want to talk a little bit more about the significance, why the 75th is so important in the time that we live in, right now, and in the work that's taking place inside the military, specifically the Air Force? Well, when you think about the, the, the geostrategic environment, you know, we're probably in a very uh, um, challenging time compared to what we've been over the course of the past uh, the number of decades. You also think about the, uh, the aspect of the rules-based international order that came into place after the end of World War II, and uh, current events are starting to challenge that. And this is why, for our United States Air Force, what we've been doing for the past 25 years, when you think about our mission to fly, fight, and win, air power, anytime, anywhere, we still got to be able to do that. We've got to be able to do it even better than we've done in the past. 
as you watch the threats evolve and the challenges evolve, we cannot rest on our laurels of the past 75 years. We've got to be better than we are today. Um, and that's what I'm focused on as the chief of staff of the Air Force. It's the kind of uh, capability equipment that we put in the hands of our airmen, but it's also the airmen we bring into our Air Force and the quality of the young people that join our Air Force and, and those that are like myself that have been around for a while that stick around uh, as part of our Air Force that, that make us the most respected Air Force in the world. And I could not be prouder as a chief of staff of the Air Force watching what they do day in and day out. They make the difficult look easy, um, but I know that they, they do it uh, based on pride and passion of serving their nation. I saw a commercial the other day where you were sitting in what looked like an empty hangar, and you said, I'm African-American, I'm a Latino, I'm Asian, I'm an American airman, kicking your butt. So what is the message? I understand what you said, but tell us the message and who it's intended for. Uh, The message is really for all of America to understand when we're doing our mission and we're working uh, together as a team, it doesn't really matter what your background is, whether you're African-American, Latino, um, male or female, white, Uh, Asian-American, gay or straight. It's the fact that we're a team. And and that's what we're really focused on, and that any one of us can come in and and reach our full potential. Uh, I'll use my own personal story. I was going to do this and do four years and get out. Never imagine or envision I'd be sitting here as a chief of staff of the Air Force One, but also the first African-American to be a service chief for any branch of our military. Um, I'm just a a regular person that actually has a... uh, a great opportunity. And the goal here is to show that there's opportunities for, for anyone that wants to serve in our military. And uh, I'll just tell you from my, also from personal experience, I've had so many different opportunities that when I read my own biography, I kind of pinch myself that I actually got to do many of the things that are written down on paper. And uh, I know that it's been, I've had some very unique experiences. General, you're, you're exactly right about all of that, and, and you, you know you know it better than anybody else, your story, but what's taking place this weekend, the first time in three years, people have had the chance to come out here to see, to witness this thank you, essentially, from the Air Force and, and Space Force, et cetera, to them for the role that they play. There's a lot of kids out here. I saw a little girl who was running along the flight line holding her father's hand, and she was just exploding with excitement. He had to hold her, contain her. You're getting prepared for the future, and this event is a part of that, right? It is, and this is a way for us to uh, connect with our um, the American public, um, because you know after 9/11, uh, as you're probably aware, our base and getting on our bases got a little more difficult, and the way to open up our base and allow uh, the American public to come see uh, what their tax dollars pay for, but also to meet some of the airmen that are actually getting the uh, getting the mission done. Um, I think that's really important. I, I think the other aspect is. It's, uh, it's an opportunity for young people to see the opportunities that are within the United States Air Force or really across our military because other services are represented here as well. And I've always believed that young people only aspire to be what they see. You don't decide to grow up to be something that you've never seen. And so when a young person comes and, and has a chance to see um, you know, some of the capabilities we have, meet some of the airmen, um, and see someone that looks like them, to go, you know, one day I could do that. And that's that's the goal of, of uh, this opportunity, and uh, and really to connect with the uh, the American public so they get a better appreciation. We're we're great Americans just like they are, and uh, we we appreciate their support, and we want to continue to gain their support, um, but but also um, you know being able to work together as a nation is is also important to us as well. As a person, and a moment of personal privilege, I'd like to take in just a moment. Who is a journalist, but also a citizen of this country, I had the opportunity and. 2009 to fly with the Thunderbirds to see and feel, and I will say I 
was able to get the 9G pen. But, you know, that's not, it wasn't about getting that pen. It was about seeing what you're talking about. And I can say that it was absolutely life changing in, in, in many different ways because of what was going on in Iraq, Afghanistan. And being embedded s- several times with the Air Force, three or four times in many of those places downrange, I saw up close and personal what was taking place. That kind of thing doesn't happen as much now because of changes. But let me just ask this question. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no greater Air Force in the world I've been told, and you've said that, and other people have said that too. But how do you prove that every day to Americans? Well, you know, part of it is watching what we do. And, uh, you know, I'll use an example of last, uh, last August a year ago. In 17 days, we did the largest humanitarian airlift in the history of the world. Now, we did not do that by ourselves, though. Uh, but it was led primarily by the United States Air Force with our joint teammates, but also with our allies and partners. And that was not something that was, uh, you know, planned in a long period of time that was going to happen. It happened, and our airmen delivered. And that's the aspect when I talk about our, our mission to fly, fight, win, air power, anytime, anywhere. When the nation calls, we're able to respond. Even if we didn't predict, you know, we can't predict the future, but we want to be prepared for whatever comes our way. And that's a, that's a small example of, of what we're able to do, but it's also what we've been doing over the course of the past. You know, what I would say, you know, some people talk about the 20 years in the Middle East. The United States Air Force has been in the Middle East since Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And we've been able to do uh, many of the things to uh, provide the support to allies and partners but also to ensure, um, as we've talked, to, you know, many of have talked about, that we have not had a major terrorist attack on our nation in 20 years, 21 years past 9/11, and, and that's partly due to air power because of you know what we do here in the homeland um, to provide that support, but it's what we do abroad as well uh, to make sure that threat doesn't come here to the United States. Speaking of abroad, you're hosting the International Air Chiefs. What are you doing during this this hosting session? Well, one of the uh, uh, first things we did was we had an outstanding tattoo at an Audi field. And the tattoo was really a demonstration of air power with some air, airplane flyby, uh, aspects of the Air Force Band, the Air Force Honor Guard, um, and a history of our Air Force. And that was the first um, big event. We have a conference yesterday where we had uh, air chiefs and members of uh, the think tank community on stage talking about various topics related to um, mission command and our doctrine, uh, aspects of uh, information and how we uh, operate in an information environment, and then also about recruiting and retention. Then we had a great dinner last night, uh, formal dinner with uh, all the Air Chiefs, and then they're all here today uh, at the Air Show. I think the one thing I would highlight on this is the relationships and friendships we build with, with the Air Chiefs. And I, I will tell you, half the Air Chiefs that are here already know. I've met with before. Uh, we have long-term relationships. In some cases, we kind of grew up together. Um, and, and that, to me, is uh, the beauty of the events like this because it's, it's, it's bringing Air Chiefs from around the world, and they have a chance now to engage on topics that uh, you probably can't, you know, always do because you're not in the same place. And, and really bringing um, them all together has been really exciting for me and uh, uh, getting to see them all again and, uh, you know, connect and, and, uh, and talk about uh, the geostrategic environment and what we can do together as airmen to ensure the security, not just for our individual nations, but we do for the world. Right. So give us a little sense of, you know, you've talked about what you've done and, and where you are and being an African-American, this being a diverse uh, an effort to, to be more diverse. Um, but you talked about growing up and growing up in the Air Force. I get it. That's what you're talking about. So tell us what you did during your growing up, your years in the Air Force so far. Well, I, actually, I would, um, from a diversity standpoint, I'd, I'd actually go before I came in the Air Force. 
and I go back just growing up as a as a military child. You know, my dad's a retired Army colonel, and uh, the thing I would highlight is the barriers that he broke that helped pave the way for me. Um, he was commissioned through ROTC, St. Mary's University in San Antonio. He was the second African American to get commissioned. His brother was the first, and so the two of them set a role model for our, within our family. Uh, not to mention that my grandfather served in World War II, but the as I bounced around as a military child, I went to schools that were, you know, in third grade, my sister and I were the only African-Americans in the entire elementary school. And then I went to high school in Newport News, Virginia, where 50% of the, uh, my classmates were African-American. Uh, so, what school was that? Uh, Ferguson High School, which is now closed. It's all part of Christopher Newport University now. Um, but I, I basically have been able to operate and live and see, uh, you know, different aspects of diversity based on the environments I, I was in. And then as I came into the Air Force as a fighter pilot, uh, typically, I was the only African American uh, in my squadron, or, or one of two within a, a wing of you know seventy, eighty pilots. And so, you know, how do you you, know, you got to navigate in and out of that? And and even as a senior officer, uh, many times I was the only African American in the room. Mm-hmm. And so, um, from that aspect, I also know that I, I represent uh, many of the African Americans, but I, I don't represent all. And, and 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 so there is a bit of a you know what I would say a little bit of burden on your shoulders, particularly if you're the first or the only, um, but. My goal is to not be the first and only. Yeah. Um, I want to do is make and break barriers, and by being in this position, hopefully, I, I, I become a role model for others. And they look up and say, "I can, I can do this." And I, I'll just tell you, as I travel around, the number of people I meet that come to me and tell me that I'm an inspiration to them, and which is kind of awkward. Yeah. Because I'm a, I'm just a, you know, I, I just, I'm a regular guy. I'm CQ Brown, and I tell them, you know, I'm still a, a spouse, um, you know, a husband. A father, I got two sons that I still worry about, just like any other parent. Um, my parents worry about me, just like you know the same kind of thing. So it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of weird sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I do, I do get it. I've had similar situations and sensations myself. But um, you're doing what you said you wanted to do, and you're doing what you said you planned to do, and that is to make this Air Force more diverse. So can you give us some nuts and bolts about how you're going about that? Sure. Um, you know. One of the things we did as an Air Force and as a Department of the Air Force is we did some uh, some reviews, and those reviews looked at uh, racial disparity um, with first initially with African Americans, then we brought it to other um, racial and ethnic groups, and then we also looked at uh, gender. And the combination of those gave us an opportunity to take a hard look at ourselves and also look at the data that shows how different demographics progress within our Air Force. What we did find is there's probably some data points we're not collecting that we can probably collect better to get some better insights on how we improve ourselves. As part of this, uh, we also host, and I uh, chair a diversity and inclusion council every month. We look at uh, not the statistics and pat ourselves on the back on certain things, but look at how do we actually look at some, some hard issues and how do we make some changes. And there's three areas that I've been focused on uh, broadly in kind of my metrics. The things that we do have to be meaningful. And when I, when I say that, it, it can't be something that we do, and I did it comes out of the headquarters of the Air Force and the Pentagon, and then it gets out into the field and our airmen go, you know what, that, that, didn't, that didn't do anything. Right. So it's got to resonate with them. It's got to be uh, sustainable, and, uh, it, which means we've got to put some resources behind it. So whether it's uh, you know, uh, the things we do in recruiting, uh, the things we do uh, internal of the Air Force, the manpower um, and organizations we, we commit to diversity and inclusion, they have to be resourced. And that's something that we as an Air Force um, – kind of waxed and waned on in the past. And so I think we, we are making commitments there. And then it's got to be enduring. And uh, because uh, it, it's something that's really important to me, it's got to be important to the entire Air Force after I leave. So it's got to be things that are going to be around after we leave. 
one of the key areas that we, we do have, we have these uh, barrier access working groups that represent different demographics. So we get really grassroots feedback from our airmen. And then I work with our senior officers who are the champions for those groups to help give them access to me, one, but also how do we figure out how best to do this? Because the other challenge I want to see, see sometimes is one group you know, wants to do something, but it's going to step on the toes of another group. And so what I've got to do is make sure you make sure we're, we're, we're raising everybody at the same level and not uh, you know, do something for one that's going to impact the other. And, uh, but I'm committed to doing things. But it's also got to remind them, too, we're, we're part of a military organization. And so many of the things that, and some kinds of the things they want to do, we can't do it all um, um, because we're also part of a uh, Department of Defense. And so I also coordinate and talk to my, uh, my counterparts, the other service chiefs. Uh, the chief master on the Air Force does the same thing with her uh, counterparts to ensure that we are um, kind of all moving together in, uh, as you look at diversity and inclusion across not only the Air Force, Department of the Air Force, but really across the Department of Defense. And General, could you talk uh, for a few minutes about moving into the future, um, what your biggest challenges, concerns, issues, threats, et cetera, hopes, plans, et cetera, however you want to frame that and go about it, but uh, anything you want to tell us about the future with re- reference to those, uh, those, uh, those elements? Well, from a broader standpoint, um, when I came in as a chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, one of the things uh, I did is lay out my strategic approach of accelerate, change, or lose. And part of that was based on, as I looked at the threat and looked at what we've been doing for the past 30 years, uh, fighting violent extremists, I also saw, uh, having served in the Pacific as the commander of Pacific Air Forces, uh, the rise of the People's Republic of China as our pacing challenge and Russia as an acute threat, which means... The capabilities we have today and the things we're doing today are not going to be the, the, you know, commensurate with the threat we're going to see in the future. So the first piece is how do we change ourselves to, you know, make sure we're keeping pace and staying ahead of the threat so we continue to be, uh, remain as the most respected Air Force in the world. So that's that's one part, and that's on a, looking at the capabilities. But it's the other aspect that is, you know, the things we do to take care of our airmen and families. Um, because if we bring and recruit it's bringing in uh, the best talent within the nation of those that want to serve. At the same time, once they come in, it's the things we do to retain them. And it's uh, we often talk about we recruit the airmen, but we retain the family. And uh, I will just tell you that uh, that's uh, something my wife, Shireen, is focused on. And she's got a, uh, a program. She's worked with other spouses on Five and Thrive, on the five key things that are important to Air, uh, uh, Air Force families. It's you know, child care, education, health care, housing, and spouse employment. If we pay attention to those things... Um, that that's going to what's going to retain a family that's going to stick with us for uh, for a full career. So it's those kinds of things that we got to pay attention to. And at the same time, I, I also believe the the shape of the Air Force uh, will change. And as we start looking at autonomy, as we start looking at uh, uncrewed platforms, uh, or as we start to look at cyber, you know, uh, folks have asked me as a fighter pilot, do you worry about uh, you know fighter pilots going away? Well. Um, They'll probably, they may be less fighters in the future as we go down another path. There may be more cyber operators, for example. And we've got to think about that, if, and we can't rest on the current construct that we have and, and just hope that's going to work. Uh, we often talk about in military, we can't use hope as a course of action. We actually have to take a hard look at ourselves and be willing to shape and change. And, and I realize it's tough for, for some people. Change is hard, um, but uh, losing it is unacceptable. And that's why I'm, I'm really focused on ensuring that we, as an Air Force, uh, do the things that the nation asks us to do. Can you give me a sense of what a typical day is like for you? Uh, sure. Um, I'm usually up uh, close to 5 o'clock. Uh, I, uh, I work out probably five, six days a week. 
it's kind of my uh, release. So I uh, get that done. I usually try to do these uh, high-intensity type workouts so I can get them done in about half an hour and get uh, get my heart rate up. And then I'll spend about half an hour cooling off, uh, eating breakfast, doing a little bit of email. <laughs> and then I get to the office uh, about 7, shortly after 7. And then uh, my first meeting, probably one of my most important meetings of the day, is with the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, the Undersecretary of the Air Force, and the Chief of Space Operations. It's just the four of us in the room. Uh, and then the rest of the day is, a, as you might imagine, a series of meetings on topics uh, that impact our force. And uh, one of the things I, I, I appreciate and enjoy doing is getting involved in the process. It's hard to me, for me to advocate for something that's handed to me at the last minute. That's uh, a good idea. That uh, but There are a lot of good ideas uh, that come from our airmen. But I want to be involved in the process so we can help shape it because, you know, there's some things I know that they don't know and there's some things they know that I don't know. And the better we can collaborate and work together. And that's one of the key words that I put into Accelerate Change or Lose is collaboration. And that collaboration goes through all levels of, uh, of leadership and it doesn't matter what your rank is, but how do we work this together to ensure we're laying out probably the best possible options for the United States Air Force and for the nation. And, uh, and so that runs through until about 5.36. Then I go home and have uh, dinner with my wife, watch the evening news, and then uh, I go do my homework. So then to follow up to that, and uh, I'm going to make this the last for this, um, then I'm going to ask you, of course, if there's anything you want to add, but the, the follow-up to that question, the natural question, is what then keeps you up at night after you're supposed to be going to bed? Right. Well, there's, there are, uh, there's two sides of that coin. Um, you know, there's some things I worry about the Air Force, um, that uh, we are not moving fast enough, that we're not making the change that uh, we need to be able to, to stay ahead of the threat. And then the other that uh, I share is... Uh, the other thing keeps me up at night is that phone call from my sons. As a parent, um, even at your at the senior level, it doesn't relieve you of those kinds of things. And so, um, I've got to balance that as well to be available for them, to be available for my wife uh, if she's going to call. Um, but I worry about them. You know um, that they're going to be successful. They're not going to run into issues. Um, and, and so, those are the two things that uh, that kind of keep me up at night. Um, probably more so my my sons <laughs> than the Air Force partly because we've got great airmen um, and the things that they're able to do. And, and I've seen just time and time again, uh, they get thrown a curveball or get something that they didn't expect and are able to respond. And part of that is, is how we as leaders give them intent and guidance and get out of the way and allow them to go out and execute. Let me just say this one thing, and then I'll ask you that final question for you to give me your feedback on. Yesterday I had the chance to sit down with what they call the Big Six the directors and deputy directors from the CIA, the FBI, DHS, oh, sorry, DIA, NSA, NRO, and NGA. And they all talked about the need for our military to be the best in the world. And they talked about how it was, how it is the best in the world to keep America safe and strong. And the Air Force is right there in the mix in that conversation. So, there, people recognize what you're trying to do, and by by what I hear from them, you're getting it done. So the last thing I'll ask you, is there anything that you want to add that I haven't asked you that you think is important? Let me just build on your last point there. Um, you know, One area that I, I also take about is the fact that we, we, we can continue to say we're the best until we're not. And my point there is we've got to continue to invest in the United States Air Force um, from a resource standpoint and capability. Um, this is why I spend so much time on the Hill to engage with our, our members and our uh, and their staffers. Uh, but it's also investing in our airmen and, and their families. And so for me, um, I am really, really focused on, you know, how do I advocate for the Air Force? And uh, just like uh, the, the top six that you had a chance to meet with yesterday, um, 
they can talk about the Air Force and the great things we do, but want to make sure we can continue that well into the future. You know, we're celebrating 75 years uh, this weekend. I want to set ourselves up for success that we can do this for the next 75 and the next 75 and the next 75 beyond that. And uh, that's my role as a service chief, to, to the best of my ability to do what I can to set that foundation and to make the shift to the future. General, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. General Charles Q. Brown, Jr., the first African-American chief of staff for the U.S. Air Force. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, Ukraine, atrocities in Izium. This is the story of a survivor. We're getting to that police station. He takes us in the second lower floor and he recognizes his cell. Armand Soldin telling the story of a 68-year-old man who took them to one of the torture centers. Where he was staying with, he told us at first with four other people, then six, then eight, and he lost the counts. He said that he was beaten, that he was hearing a lot of screams coming around, that he was going on for 24-7. He was beaten with a metal bar. On his arm until they broke it. And according to Soldin, this was a dark place where people lost track of time. And we also saw like marks on the wall. We saw like proper calendar of marks on the wall indicating days for for the prisoners to, to keep track. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the national security podcast. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves, now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that... You know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts.